This week on Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast, we welcome Professor Jonathan Fortney to the show. Jonathan has the distinction of being the first professor we've had on this podcast, depending on how you're counting. Remember, on episode two, we caught Courtney dressing just before she left Caltech to start her professorship at UC Berkeley. Anyway, Jonathan was visiting Caltech this week to give not one, not two, but three talks here on campus before heading up to JPL to deliver a fourth. I am stunned and inspired by how much knowledge is in this man's brain and how eloquently he can disseminate it. It was an easy decision to ask him to be on my podcast. I'm here with Jonathan Fortney, who is a professor at University of Santa Cruz, University of California at Santa Cruz, which is a beautiful place I've visited several times. It's a magical forest land right on the beachside. Is that an accurate description? It is a magical forest land. We're, we're about a mile and a half from the beach, although there are places on campus where you can definitely see the ocean. Yeah. And are there really banana slugs there? There really are banana slugs uh, on campus and in town and in the forests outside of town. That's, that's really cool. Uh, UCSC's mascot is a banana slug, which I've always found to be both hilarious, but also amazing. And Largest slug in the Western Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. Fear the banana slugs. <laughs> so, yeah, Jonathan's visiting Caltech, and so very impromptu, I grabbed him after lunch and asked him if he would be a willing participant in uh, recording a short interview for this podcast. So this is a science and Star Trek podcast. Mm -hmm. They're trying to talk about the intersection between the two, how science has influenced Star Trek, how Star Trek has influenced or is reflected in scientific pursuits as well. How familiar are you with Star Trek? I'm reasonably familiar. You know, I've seen, uh, I would say... You know, maybe a, a dozen or maybe more of the old classics, and I've probably seen many dozens of Next Generation. Nice. After that, not as much until until the new the, the new movies, which I've seen. I believe I've seen all of them okay. in the past, whatever, five or six years, however long it's been. Yeah, the J.J. Abrams reboot That's right. movies. That's right. Yeah. Have you ever seen any Star Trek Voyager you know, I did see so that's I'd forgotten about. For sorry, I'd forgotten about Voyager. Sorry. Yeah, I don't think I ever saw any Deep Space Nines, but I saw quite a few Voyagers with Catherine Janeway, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. So there's this episode of Voyager called Extreme Risk, where they send a probe into what they call a Class Six gas giant planet, and the probe goes down there and it gets stuck. The probe stuck in a deep layer of liquid hydrogen and methane about 10,000 kilometers below the outer atmosphere. It's not responding to commands. Any good news? It's still intact. It can be repaired. If we can get it out of there. And they need to go retrieve it and retrieve all the science that the probe has done. And so they basically build this new, very advanced shuttlecraft. Behold, the Delta Flyer. Ultra aerodynamic contours, retractable nacelles, parametallic hull plating, Unimatrix shielding based on Tuvok's brilliant design for the multispatial probe and a Borg-inspired weapon system. The Delta Flyer, which ends up playing a major role in the subsequent 
episodes and seasons of the series. Basic design elements are adequate. <laughs> High praise. But the Dolls of Fire's main purpose was to be able to withstand the high pressure and high temperature of the inside of a gas giant planet. And I know that you study gas giant planets both within our solar system and beyond. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell us what we know about the interiors of these planets, having not yet sent a probe very, very deep inside of it, but we have sent a couple things, right? Yeah, so yeah. so what, have we, what have we sent to and inside of gas giant planets so far, and what have we learned from that? And how do we go beyond all of that in terms of understanding what, what, what is actually inside? Yeah. So uh, the Galileo mission to, to Jupiter had the Galileo entry probe, and that had a, a massive heat shield on it because um, I think the velocity it went in at it was something like 50 kilometers per second, something like yeah. that. There's a, I think Jupiter's escape velocity is about 60 kilometers per second. And um, it made it to about 22 bars, which is um, not that far into the planet, but it was about 400 Kelvin at that spot. Mm -hmm. And it measured... Um, Quite a few things. It measured um, flux coming out of the interior of the planet. It measured energy from the sun going down. It was uh, trying to measure, trying to pick out cloud species with, I believe it's called a nephilometer. What is that? A nephilometer. Uh, a, a nephilometer uh, uh, I think it, it actually it measures uh, the abundance of like solids that are floating in, in a gas. Uh, and then it had a mass spectrometer to measure the abundances of, of the background gas. Mm -hmm. Then it had a very specific kind of instrument, I don't really know the physics behind it, that was able to measure the hydrogen to helium ratio extremely precisely, even more precisely than the, than the mass spectrometer. Then also measured wind speeds. I think it had like a lightning detector oh, for wow. like electromagnetic uh, pulses and stuff like that. Those are the things that I can remember. Okay. The Galileo probe gave us our first glimpse at the composition of what's inside of Jupiter. Mm -hmm. But people always, or at least... Professor Andy Ingersoll in this department likes to say that it fell into a somewhat unfortunate spot in that this whatever spot it actually plunged into didn't have a lot of water in it. And so maybe it accidentally fell into like the Sahara Desert of Jupiter. And, you know, when you have a, just one sample at this one point of a planet, like, you know, if, if you just send one probe to a desert on Earth, you might conclude that, oh, Earth is a desert. Yay! <laughs> and then you'd be completely wrong. So, so how do we get around this problem of just having this one sample of, of Jupiter's interior? How, what else do we do to understand giant planets? Yeah, well, I mean, there's all sorts of other ways to understand the interior. So um, another way, which is more indirect, is looking at, at the gravity field of the planet. Since Jupiter and Saturn are both really rapid rotators, they're actually quite oblate. They're fatter around the middle. And so their gravitational field is actually different than what it would be if it was a totally spherical planet. And so you actually get some leverage on the density as a function of radius inside the planet. And so that's, that's the data that people have used to infer that both Jupiter and Saturn must have a, a core uh, at their centers in the, in the deepest part of the interior. That's, that's, that's where that inference comes from. Very cool. You gave a really awesome talk yesterday about how exoplanets have revolutionized our understanding of the breed of species of planets that we call giant planets. Mm -hmm. And so what, what have we learned from having so many more samples of these giant planets, but also what are the 
limitations that we have to overcome because we can't send something to them, much less inside of them. All we really know are their their masses and their radii, right? Or or, or do we know more? Yeah. <laughs> so the way I like to think about it is is kind of try to put myself back to like the 1960s. Uh -huh. I was not alive at the time, but if you read the literature about, you know, let's say Jupiter and Saturn at the time, already kind of by the early 1970s, people had figured out that Jupiter and Saturn didn't have the same composition as the sun. They were enriched in the heavier elements. And you could actually tell that just from the planet's bulk densities. Given their masses, they have radii that are smaller, modestly smaller than you would expect if they had the same composition as the sun. Mm -hmm. And so in exoplanets, we often just have the mass and the radius and how much energy the planet gets from its star. And so what we've been trying to do is, is run uh, evolution models that try to track the history of how the planet contracts over time. And we compare the model radii over time to what's observed for an individual planet. And from that, just like we did in the solar system 50 years ago, we can figure out the amounts or the excess amounts of these heavy elements inside of exoplanets that are tens of light years away. Mm -hmm. And we can also look for trends, you know, whether or not what we see for Jupiter and Saturn are representative of exoplanets or if Jupiter and Saturn are oddballs. And so one of the things that I found really exciting is from the sample size of 50 planets, we can see that Jupiter and Saturn fit in really well amongst what I would call their, their cousin planets that um, they are enriched in these heavy elements in a way that's very similar to these exoplanets. Mm -hmm. And so I imagine this enrichment comes from gobbling up solid, icy planetesimals where these planets formed. Is that is that right? Is that picture kind of? Yeah. So the way people think about giant planets forming is that in the nebula around the parent star, there's solids and there's gas, and the solids can grow quickly to a, a core that might be 10 or 15 Earth masses. And then the gravity of that core actually pulls down tens or even hundreds of Earth masses of hydrogen and helium on top of that. But at the same time it's pulling in hydrogen and helium, it's also pulling in planetesimals, comets, asteroids that are enriching the envelope in these heavier elements at the same time. So in addition to the core, we also expect the envelope to also be enriched in heavy elements compared to the star. And what we would like to know is how that changes as a function of planet mass, as a function of the parent star's composition, as a function of where the planets formed uh, in their disk. Now I know a lot of these giant planets are very close to their host stars, so they've gone through a bunch of migration, or so we think, because we think that they need to form far out where there's enough solid material for them to form that core and then accrete the gas shortly thereafter. I don't know what I want to ask with that, but <laughs> um, it just seems like the giant planets that we study right now that are orbiting other stars seem like they've gone through very different histories from our own giant planets, which are still stuck outside of what we would call the ice line in the formation of the solar system. And so we're getting a glimpse at giant planets that are similar but also very different from our own. I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, it's always something you have to keep in mind in that, you know, when you compare these planets to Jupiter and Saturn, you hope it's apples to apples, mm -hmm. but you have to be mindful that maybe it's apples to oranges. 
but maybe you have to start with apples and oranges before you eventually can do apples to apples. So I think there's, there's value in the comparison, even if in the end we find out that there are clear differences between the populations. That in its own would be interesting. And so what are we looking forward to in the near future in terms of advancements in modeling or telescopes that will help us understand these far-off giant planets even better? Yeah. I'm most excited for the James Webb Space Telescope, which is launching in spring 2019. And uh, that'll allow us to take spectra of the atmospheres of probably dozens of giant planets around other stars. And um, the atmospheric abundances that we can measure with these very high resolution, precise spectra, we can compare those atmospheric abundances to what we've learned about Jupiter from the entry probe mm -hmm. and also from Jupiter and Saturn, from Jupiter and Saturn's spectra. And so what I'm hopeful for is that we will see trends in the spectra of these planets in terms of their enrichment and things like water, carbon monoxide, maybe alkali metals that do show trends that help us better understand Jupiter and Saturn in context of these other planets. Awesome. All right, just one last question before I let you yeah. run off to your next meeting. So Star Trek has given us one episode where we went inside of a, a giant planet, at least one episode that I can remember. Maybe there are more. But if you could imagine some Star Trek episode that will be written in the future mm -hmm. that has to do with giant planets, what would you like the crew of the Enterprise, or, or now the Discovery, mm -hmm. To, to go and explore about a giant planet? What would you hope that they would be able to learn that, that we can't do sitting here on Earth? I would like to learn about the various decks of clouds that we think Jupiter has hidden beneath an, an any giant planet. So um, if you think about Jupiter's atmosphere, we see there's, a, there's an ammonia cloud. That's the top cloud we see. And we think below that, um, there's, there's a water cloud that's probably not present everywhere, but it probably covers most of the planet. And then as you go down deeper, there should be other clouds. There should be um, salt clouds and sulfide clouds and uh, maybe at almost 2,000 Kelvin rock clouds and iron clouds. And uh, I would like to, to, to have a probe that's able to go deep enough to see um, if those clouds are indeed there and to learn about how thick they are, how they affect the structure of the planets, and then get below all those clouds to measure um, the abundances of all of these different atoms in Jupiter. I think that would be really special. And so I think that would be a, a, something that would take advanced technology to really get down to such high pressures and temperatures and collect a sample and, and bring it back. I think that would be pretty, pretty amazing. Definitely. Yeah. So Star Trek Discovery producers and writers, if you're listening, <laughs> let's have an episode where we go down into a gas giant planet and look at the rock clouds that might be there. I think that would be a really stunning episode. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Jonathan. I'm, I'm glad you're me. here at Caltech um, for the couple days that you are and um, looking forward to your next seminar this afternoon. All right. Sounds yeah. great. Thanks for having me. Thanks. That concludes episode 19 of Strange New Worlds. I hope you enjoyed my brief chat with Professor Jonathan Fortney about what's inside of giant planets. You can follow Jonathan on Twitter at JJFPlanet, where he tweets all kinds of great science content. I'll be back next time with the true story 
from Nathan Stein, our guest from episode 12, who ventured back to a hurricane-ravaged island in the Caribbean for science. Until then, see you out there.